Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. Alex is in her element right now. She is so excited. The chatting has been just so positive. Go on, Alex, who have we got on? So, yeah, we've been gassing for like 20 minutes already. This is brilliant. We have Alexander Lahman with us today, who's a historian, author, journalist, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, his latest book is The Crowning Crisis, The Path to the Abdication. Uh, so, or The Road to Abdication, which means it's Edward VIII and a bit of George V, which means I'm loving this because we've already established that we basically agree on everything. So this is great. Alina, why don't you start the questions while I try and like de-excite myself? <laughs> can I just can I just throw that throw something in there just before we do that? Um, you just went, Alex Larman, he's blah, 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 but he's got a George George. What was it? No, Edward the Sixth. Edward the Sixth. Oh, mate, you need to learn the difference. You need to learn the difference between Edward the Sixth and Edward the Eighth. <laughs> One is a teenage boy who died four hundred years ago, <laughs> nearly five hundred years ago. The other okay, I'm going to be diplomatic, is the man that we'll be talking about today. Indeed. Exactly. But my, <laughs> my point is, is that you completely are far more excited about the book and far more excited about the talk than, than, than giving us a nice long introduction. But I love yeah, it. yeah, he and wrote it's... some stuff, whatever. Anyway, this book is out today. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Oh, I just, uh, I received a copy from your publisher and I'm flipping the pages and I'm going, yep, 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 yep. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. <laughs> you can hear how excited she is. So let's dismiss Alex for a second. And yeah, do you know what this is? It's question. because when I finish my book, it will match perfectly with Alexander's. You'll finish mine and go, and what happens next? And then you will go and read his. Which is fantastically exciting because I don't yeah. know if you read Tim Bouvery's book, Appeasing Hitler. Yes. That is basically a sequel to mine. Oh. So it's, it's got like a, a little group. Yeah, because Tim Bovary's book's got lots of the same characters. That picks up in sort of 37, 38, whereas mine ends at the end of 36. So I think that if you really want to get to grips with a period, read Tim Bovary's book, Appeasing Hitler, read my book, The Crowning Crisis, and read your book. Have you got a title for it yet? No, I have a subtitle. It's George V, Edward VIII, and The Crown. It's going to be something that kind of, like, says that it's the elephant in the room the crown yeah. basically so you call it the elephant in the room that's a good I, was, I thought about it but i was like mm, is that cliche <laughs> if anyone's got any suggestions yeah I but anyway i feel really left out of this how can i get on this 
you can spell check my book for me when it's done. <laughs> Result, I am in. Right, okay. This book is called Revisionist. Why is that and what does it say that is new? Well, I think that we haven't had a major history of the abdication in several decades. And one of the things that I was interested in when I began my research was how much new information has come to light. Because there's a rather cliched and I think rather basic idea about the abdication as being something that took place for love. And there's also the, the, there's a version that everyone's told at school that the abdication was predominantly a religious affair, that Edward VIII would not be allowed to marry Wallace Simpson because she was a divorced woman. And so he abdicated the throne rather than be on his own. But what I did by going through all the archives and by interviewing people who'd known Edward and Wallace was building up a new picture. And what I became particularly interested in was the political and the media establishment and how they united against Edward in, I think, quite a desperate bid to keep the country's sanctity. And so what I became really interested in, I'd seen the film of Dunkirk shortly before I began researching the book, and that sort of ticking clock suspense I thought it was done so brilliantly there. I want to do something similar in a book. I wanted to have a real sense of there being this massive event coming. And it's, I mean, the subtitle of the book is Countdown to the Abdication. And I wanted there to be this sense of a ticking clock as you have these massive characters, massive events, and of course, World War II and Hitler on the horizon. Oh, you can blame Madonna for the whole love story thing in part, can't you? Madonna can fuck off. Madonna made... <laughs> Madonna so true. Yeah, it was awful and it was silly and it's a film and it's not at all based in fact, is it? What really annoyed me about WE, which is the film she made, is that essentially it's a bedblocker for a better film. There should be a phenomenal film about this subject. If you, look mm. at the, if you look at the TV series The Crown, it's so suspenseful, it's so exciting, it makes the driest sounding things come to life. What Madonna did in WE is the exact opposite. She makes, <laughs> she makes this amazing material about as exciting as going to the laundrette. Seriously, I watched that film and there are numerous points in it. I was just, I was growling with anger. <laughs> Same. No. <laughs> no. It's, I mean, the absolute worst part for me, and I acknowledge this in the book, was that moment when there's Wallace dancing with somebody dressed as an African tribesman and the Sex Pistols Pretty Vacant is playing on the soundtrack. And the growling I was making at that point <laughs> was positively frightening. I It'd be like my cat when he's at the window and he sees the bin men walking around. It's like this deep-seated, sinister, I'm going to kill you or I'm going to fuck you up, bro. Yeah, it, do you know what? It's like, oh, I just, I can't even. There's artistic license and then there's that. What I thought was, I, I mean, clearly she had no expert opinions. She had no consultants. She hadn't read any of the books about it. She may as well based her bloody awful script on Wikipedia for all the good it could have done. Wikipedia if, would have given it far too much credibility well, yeah. compared to what we got. Nicely, oh, But that's the thing. I mean, I think people have a very warped view of who Edward was and who Wallace was. And films like that do not help in the slightest. But what I've tried to do, and what you'll try to do later, is to have a completely different idea of who Edward was, what the situation was, and hopefully I've succeeded in doing that. I mean, it's been, early reaction to my book has been incredibly positive. I'm really excited about that. So Yeah, I mean, I've, I've read it already. I was like, boom, free copy. I'm in, cover to cover in like a day. And uh, yeah, when you say presenting Edward in a different way, uh, it's the accurate way, I think, that we're trying to present him because he has been romanticised and it drives me 
batshit crazy. Um, So let's tell the story, right? 1931, by 1931, who is he? Who is he in private, key, but who is he in public? Because they are two utterly different things, aren't they? Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, you know even more about this than I do. But what I'd say from my perspective is that in public... He's the really popular Prince of Wales. He's glamorous. He's handsome. He's seen as, I think this is crucial, the first post-Victorian monarch. He's bringing something really new to the idea of kingship. And the the public are excited about that. They think he's this figure who is, he's got the glamour of a film star, but he's got an accessibility. He's one of them. He's always been at his happiest with going about with his fellow countrymen. So that's the public edge of the ape that we've got. We've got this image of somebody who is... I mean, I think he was referred to as the most universally beloved figure in the world by a politician called John Simon, who's a Home Secretary. Yeah, that one made me a bit sick in my mouth, I'll admit. Well, that doesn't sound ridiculous in context. In context, he's not overdoing it, is he? No, but if you look at the private life, that's completely different. He's completely miserable, completely isolated. He's been having a series of affairs with women because he can. But, and this is something that I'm 99% certain of, his attitude towards sex was a completely bizarre one because I don't believe he could achieve any kind of sexual satisfaction unless he was being dominated. And I think that if you look at a letter that he wrote to one of his mistresses, there's all this stuff about how you've got to be hard with me because otherwise I get appallingly spoiled. You've got to be really cruel. Mm. So you've got this idea of this man, there's this the document I found for Royal Archives actually, which was, it was about 1931 when he had an interview with his father and his father asked him explicitly, his father George V, explicitly asked him, are you happy? And Edward said, no, not particularly. But he went on to say that he would have liked to have married his mistress, Frieda Dudley Ward, but he wasn't allowed to. And because of that, there was all of this misery and all of this stasis. So yeah. The, the thing about him, right, and I'm going to lay this on the line, is that he is one of these people that will never be happy because if he he wants something like Frieda Dudley Ward or like to be shot at by the Germans in World War One and he wants it with his entire being this childlike obsession and then he gets it and then he wants something different there's a there's a tour to Egypt in 1916 and he wants it more than anything in the world to get out of France and away from the Western Front um, and his father says all right just to quit your whining yes you can go but it's not allowed to be a jolly you're gonna have to do some work while you're there and blah 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 um so he goes and he gets there oh this is gonna be shit and awful and blah 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 and i wish i was somewhere else i just you read it and you just think you are doomed to be miserable your entire life yeah it's a story of his life he's yeah He's a complete malcontent. And the, also, we're, when we get off this call, we're going to have a talk about the sex thing. So I've got something to tell you from one of the diaries. Oh, mm. <laughs> but what I mean, I've, I've got my theories on that, which we'll talk about off the record because I've yeah. scandalised <laughs> people that bit too much. Um, what I think it was about Edward when he met Wallace Simpson was that he was ripe for the plucking. He, somebody who was cleverer than him, more assured than him, could have had him. And by having him, I mean not just sexually, I mean possessing him completely. I mean basically supping on his essence, if you like. Yeah, it's it's this whole thing about him being, he is a, a very non-dominant character. Uh, it, it's weird. Um, and if it yeah. sounds like you're being dramatic, having sat and read the same documents that you have, yeah. you're not. No. being a drama queen you're absolutely not you read it and you're just like you oh okay to be a yeah. sap. <laughs> you actually want someone to just figure it out for you 
and do it all for you. Um, so who is Wallace Simpson? When does she come into his life? And why is she different to the likes of Frieda Dudley Ward and the other women that he's been cavorting with? Well, by the time that he met Wallace, she was already divorced. Her first husband was a, a bully who used to beat her up. But she'd spent time in China when she was younger because she was the only daughter of, of this woman who lost her husband at a very young age. She'd had a very difficult existence. She was somebody who had been going from place to place. And when she arrived in China with her first husband, it's quite likely that she visited the, the Sing Sing houses or the brothels as we'd call them. And it's here that she was said to have learned all these arts, which were basically about control, both sexual control in terms of how you could make a man prolong his orgasm to a point that was actually painful, but also about physical control, because the whole point of these concubines was that they knew that they had to get the highest status men they could, and these high status men wouldn't lose interest in them. So Wallace, essentially, in the 20s, had learned all of these arts, which nobody in British society would have gone anywhere near. Someone like Frieda Dudley Ward was not a woman who was interested in being dominant, she wasn't interested in having essentially first Prince of Wales and ever King of England under her thumb. She wanted to have a relationship. She wanted to be a lover. Whereas Wallace, I think, was not interested in that at all. What Wallace was much more interested in was the idea of control. So when she finally met Edward, it really was a yin and yang situation. But there was a vacancy in him which she could fill, and she could fill precisely because she knew what she was doing. So George V dies in January 1936, having famously said, apparently, that his son will ruin himself in a year. And this, it really hits the fountain, doesn't it? This is all happening at a supremely inconvenient time in history. Well, I suppose that if you look at the beginning of 1936, what's happening with Europe? It was exceptionally tense, and the rise of Hitler and the situation in Germany, it was a difficult one, and it was felt by many people, including Winston Churchill, that war was an inevitability. The question was, when? But the trouble was, what was giving a lot of people pause for thought was that Edward was the most pro-German member of the royal family by quite a significant distance. He'd actually met, he'd gone to the German embassy in 1935, and he'd given this incredibly ill-advised public speech, in which he basically said, right, well, the war was 17 years ago, it's all over, you know, all's done, all's, all's dusted, all's forgiven, we don't need to carry on obsessing about it. And given how many people had lost brothers, fathers, sons, relatives, it was incredibly hurtful, incredibly ill thought out. But then Edward wasn't very bright. And a lot of what he said was done without thinking, without actually giving any sense of what the, po of what the meaning was behind his words. And it so is. And also as well, it's just almost not caring with him as well, isn't it? It's no. almost like pushing the boundary. He didn't want the job of Prince of Wales. He didn't want the job of King. And it's almost like pushing the boundaries to see how, how much you can piss your dad off, how much you can yeah. piss people off. There is an element, I think, of that as well. Yeah. I think he's somebody who he never wanted to be King. He never had the slightest interest in becoming monarch. And it would have been much better. I mean, it's a... It was speculated quite a lot by some of his courtiers that if George V had lived another year, two years longer, that Edward would, would have basically found a quiet way to be moved away, to have some sort of honorific title that meant he was something like <laughs> an executive king or something. Yeah, I, George V already actively yeah. had expressed the preference for Bertie being on the throne, yeah. hadn't he? Yeah, but then of course there are troubles with that because in the end... Bertie did a very good job as king. 
but he he really didn't want it either. Mm. And you do and you do have to wonder, don't you? I mean, I don't know to what extent our present queen wanted to become monarch, but it is the ultimate poison chalice. It really is a sense that you don't want to become monarch because the upsides are very very few, and the downsides are infinitesimal. Yeah, I mean, people sit there and go, oh, she, no wonder she's 95, she's done bugger all her whole life. I'm sorry, to be Queen of England is a job you don't get to choose and it's yours till the day you die. There's no retiring. Uh, and there is. And people think duty now is a ridiculous concept and that, but it's not to her because she's in the image of her father and her grandfather and she takes it seriously. And that is that it doesn't matter if you want the damn job or not, the job is yours and you must do it properly. I think it's George V writes... Um, back in the 1890s, before he's even in the line of succession properly, before his brother dies, he writes, um, the secret to being happy is not to do what one loves, but to love what one has to do. And I think the line of monarchs we've had since George V have epitomised that, whereas Edward just didn't fit that mould. No, not at all. But one of the things that... See, what was frustrating writing a book is I was commissioned to write an 80,000-word book. It ends up being about 100,000 words. And even then, there were enormous amounts I left out because I just didn't have space for it. And one thing I tried to convey, and I I hope I succeeded, was just the banality of being king. You've got Mm. all these boxes you have to go through and sign stuff. It's like a sort of an admin job, really. Yeah. You have these red boxes of documents. You have to sit there and go through every single day signing. And it's phenomenally boring because you don't have a clue what these documents are. And then it gets quite funny because they have to just hand them over to Wallace and say, oh, Wallace, have a look at this. And these confidential state papers being left around Fort Belvedere as if they were, you know, the newspaper. Yeah, and it's like this is after Queen Victoria who would, like, kill you if you tried to touch one of her red boxes. Yeah, precisely. There's him just letting anyone have a look. But, yeah, yeah. it just... Yeah. Wow. Anyway, we're getting <laughs> stealing your interview here. Uh, okay. So it's not a convenient time in history for all this to be happening. And you've mentioned the pro germanness I mean, we've already gone full in on the sex thing. Let's just really yeah. poke the bear now. Um, because his <laughs> inclinations are possibly slightly pro-Nazi, aren't they? When I, I mean, my standard line on this, I'm going to have to come some more interesting people have bored me saying it, but when people say he was a Nazi sympathiser, I think that's absolutely bang on. He had sympathy with the Nazis. He was himself of German origin. He thought Hitler was a terrific guy, really energetic, really, you know, amazing moustache. It's, uh, it's <laughs> basically, the trouble was, nobody else shared Edward's enthusiasm for Hitler. I mean, a few politicians did, but nobody else in the royal family looked at Hitler and thought, great bloke, kind of person we want to be doing business with. Most, mm. people looked, most people looked at Hitler and thought, we've got to stay away from him. He is bad, bad news. But Edward just thought, nope, vigorous reformer, modern man, modern Germany, that's what we want. And so a lot of the problems that came about, I think misunderstanding was a massive issue in terms of the application. A lot of people misunderstood each other's motives and what they were doing. And getting it wrong about Hitler was one of Edward's greatest mistakes. Tell us about his accession. It's quite disrespectful, isn't it? Yeah. Well, basically what happened is that he watched his accession from St. James's Palace with Wallace standing next to him. And nobody else had ever done this. Everybody else had actually gone out there and been around their public. But Edward was just just standing there, just thinking, oh, well, I might as well soak up for approval and all for glory. 
and Wallace was photographed next to him. And that photograph was used in a lot of the papers, but they didn't say who Wallace was. So that became the first public sighting of her. So he, he does become king, because yeah. that is what's supposed to happen. Yeah. But how do we get from there to even the suggestion that he needs to, he needs to abdicate? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Well, there were lots of people, like Cosmo Lang, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury, and Alec Harding, who was Edward VIII's private secretary, who were saying pretty much from day one of the reign, we have to prepare for, for the possibility he's not going to last for course. Mm. And, it's quite, and it's quite interesting because Alec Harding, I found these extraordinary documents that he wrote in the Royal Archives, which a, a private secretary is supposed to be incredibly loyal to the monarch. He's the most important figure in the monarch's in, in a coterie. He has to be like, you know, the king's prime minister. He's the gatekeeper, the yeah, bullshit yeah. filter. Nothing gets to the monarch unless it's gone through the private Alec secretary. Harding absolutely hated Edward. And you, and you look at these documents which he wrote but just immediately after the abdication based on the diaries he was keeping. And it's just over and over and over again. He goes on about his selfishness, his stupidity, his lack of any engagement with it, the real world, the absolute hatred that he bore towards him. And you get the sense that Harding would have been very happy if Edward had never become king. But then once he had become king, it was... He was very good friends with Geoffrey Dawson, who was the editor of the Times, and they were good friends with Stanley Baldwin as well. So you get a sense very early on in the reign, there was this coalition forming against Edward, and all of them had the central idea, get him off the throne if we can. So the abdication itself, I think a lot of people wanted Edward to go and they would find any way of doing that that they could. And how do they manifest this? Well, initially what happened was the first six months of Edward's reign were relatively trouble-free. I mean, he, he did what he was supposed to do. The first major problem actually came in July when he was nearly assassinated. And that's a story which I have basically turned up this unseen material about, which completely turns our expectations of what that is on its head. And we'll come to that in a moment. But by August, Edward went on this cruise around Europe and the cruise ended up being enormously scandalous because it was the first public holiday for him and Wallace. And while all the newspapers in England had taken a vow of silence about reporting the king's behaviour, in Europe, it was a commonly known thing. And so Edward was being cheered on by tens of thousands of people mm. who were shouting, hurrah for the lovers. So there's a real sense that Edward was this figure who was, he was living selfishly for his own pleasure. But 
as long as Wallace was still married to Ernest Simpson, there couldn't be a constitutional crisis because they couldn't get married. Mm. So obviously it all went tits up after that. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us what you discovered about July. Well, what was very interesting for me is that there was all the biographies and stories about the abdication I previously read talked about this minor, quite strange incident where this fantasist called George McMahon threw a gun under Edward's horse while he was inspecting the Royal Cavalry in in July. And it's, you know, a minor story. Things like that have happened a couple of times to the current Queen. It's not something that seemed particularly significant. When I did a bit of looking into it, the first thing I thought was really odd was that this figure was actually, he wasn't just a random person. He was an MI5 informant. Then I found this document in Balliol College Archives called He Was My King, which is this very long and absolutely mental thing which he wrote in 1938 to try and clear his name. In it, he basically said that he'd been put up to the assassination of Edward VIII by the Italian embassy, who he was working for as a double agent. And you just think, oh God, bonanza. (laughs) (laughs) Boom. This is the kind of thing that every single historian longs for a really game-changing discovery that completely changes an incident that people haven't really said much about and it's been great because you know it's been a major newspaper story already and it's really big in Italy for some reason I'm going to have to do an interview with Italian TV after this awesome people are just really interested in it because McMahon as I said he was a fantasist and he was an alcoholic and completely unreliable but if you match up all of his accounts of what he was telling on MI5 with the MI5 documents in the National Archives, which were declassified a few years ago, you've got a lot of corroboration. And what was definitely true was that he was telling MI5 there was going to be an assassination attempt on the king. They ignored it. The assassination attempt happened. They were then faced with a situation of, oh, okay, how do we deal with this? How do we cover it up? And how they covered it up becomes a really it's a great story. It's a fa- I mean, it would practically make a book in its own right, but it's just this fantastically British cover-up. Everyone, you know, sliding into place apart from McMahon. And because he was such a fantasist and a drunk, he could be written off anyway. Wallace does divorce her husband, doesn't she? Yeah. And, and then it, it really hits the fan. Yeah. And it's a completely dodgy thing because Wallace's divorce was obtained through perjury and through all manner of shena- shenanigans. It took place in Ipswich, in a doomed attempt to get out of the publicity that would have happened if it had taken one. <laughs> Just like a, let's go somewhere no one cares about. Yeah, but, but precisely. But what, <laughs> what I loved was the description in one of the American papers of King's Mole renoed in Wolsey's hometown. And I just thought, that's amazing. King's Mole, yeah, sure, we get that. Renoed, which is American slang for divorced. And then Cardinal Wolsey's hometown. So a bit of of erudition at the end. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's it's surprisingly erudition for tabloid junk, isn't it? No, I know. So yes, after she got divorced from Ernest, that then set up the possibility that she could marry the king. And he gave her this diamond necklace or some very, very expensive item of jewellery the night of a divorce, just saying, W.E. are together now. And you think, okay. And the cabinet and all the courtiers were saying, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Because basically the crisis had then moved into its actual stage. But it wasn't in the papers. This is the amazing thing. You've got mass media presence at the at the court in Ipswich. It's all over papers, all over the world, except in England, where there's nothing in any of them. Yeah, I'm guessing there's some good sentence letters knocking round about that. 
Well, it's, it's Lord Beaverbrook, who was a, fr- a friend and supporter of Edward for completely self-interested motives, ensured that no paper published anything. Mm. And given that, this is what I've often wondered, if you have a man or woman on the street in, say, October 1936, have you heard rumours? I mean, have you got a cousin who lives in America? Have you, you know, is there somebody who's telling you that something was, was going on? Because when the news finally broke in December 1936... It was, it was the biggest story of the year. It was the biggest story of a decade until the Second World War. It was absolutely, you know, phenomenal. People were sort of not for six by it. And you think to yourself, how could you... I mean, obviously, we couldn't do it these days because social media and the like could simply not allow something like that to happen. But it's such an extraordinary idea, isn't it, that a story this big, you know, in the 30s as well, which is an era of mass media, it's an era of radio, television, film, and so on, how it's got earth? to have been the worst kept secret in Britain. But kept, but kept it was until it all exploded and then it all went mental. Yeah. Um, so talk to us about how it does go mental. What does, how do British people perceive this? Well, what was interesting is it eventually came out into, into the public because Bishop Walter Blunt, who was a Bishop of Leeds, made, he, he, he delivered a sermon in which he basically said, Edward's going to need divine guidance to help him with a problem that's coming. And he may or may not have meant to refer to Wallace Simpson, but all the papers thought, right, okay, good. A bishop said it, we can bring it into the public domain now. So after that, it was open season and it became absolutely insane because Edward left when, Edward was in London, but he left that to go to Fort Belvedere. And he basically said to Stanley Baldwin, who's Prime Minister, OK, right, if I am not allowed to marry Wallace and she will not be crowned as my king, I'm going to abdicate. But what he got wrong, I mean, there are so many misconceptions. He thought that he had the right to abdicate, just as he had the right to do things with royal authority. But it had to be explained to him, like you explained to a child, mm. not actually... But the nature of constitutional monarchy is that you have to follow the advice of your prime minister and your cabinet. Because if you don't do that, then they have to resign en masse. So you're facing this massive constitutional crisis of a like you've never seen before because he was so obsessed by marrying Wallace. Yeah, it just, it's the childlike, childishness, I'm not going to say quality, yeah. in him, isn't it? Um, because it's something he's, the constitutional monarchy and the nature of it, I mean, his father was not taught it because he was not supposed to be king. So he 100% made sure that his son was. So yeah. how we come to this point baffles me. Uh, do you, did, was Wallace always gunning to be queen, do you think? Because there's a certain school of thought, isn't there, that actually she never expected it to go as far as it did. And when it did, she was like, oh. Well, it was interesting because I started writing a book with quite a negative attitude towards Wallace. But during my research, I talked to Anne Seber, who I think is the absolute best biographer of Wallace Simpson. Mm. And I talked to Susan Williams, who wrote this book called The People's King, which has, I think, quite a pro-Wallace angle. And, I, you know, after having written the book and weighed up the evidence on both sides, Wallace had her faults. But to her immense credit, she tried to get out of that marriage. She tried to get... Because she realised what was coming. And she was much brighter than Edward ever was. Mm. And she, she could see, if he abdicated, that they'd be hounded for the rest of their lives. Which, yeah. which of course, they were. So you've got all of these letters that she was writing to him literally up to the last minute begging him not to she's making all these public statements but she wouldn't go quite far enough and because she didn't go quite far enough the application went through and that was the end of it yeah 
And something that, and something that I found is the most scary, stalkery comment of all time, which I've actually got the back of a dust jacket, when she said to him that she wanted to go. And he, and he said, oh, it's up to you. You can go wherever you want. You can go to Newfoundland. You can go anywhere. But wherever you go, I will find you. It's just like, oh, my God. <laughs> see, I've always, my take on it um, has always been that she just suddenly looked up at some point and realised how deep she dug herself in and yeah, couldn't absolutely. get out. Um, so tell us about the actual event of the abdication. Well, after a lot of difficulty and shenanigans, what happened, and I mean, not to blow my own trumpet here, but one of my absolute favourite bits in the book, it is big set piece you've got at the end when Stanley Baldwin addresses the House of Commons, which, again, it's not something that I've really read about before because a lot of the other stories just say Stanley Baldwin got this through the Commons, but he was massively up against it because Baldwin was he was quite old by this point. He was not very comfortable being Prime Minister. He was, you know, he's in quite poor health. But he managed through this amazing sort of set piece oration to get the House of Commons on side, and they voted through the abdication bill, which meant that he he could abdicate the throne. And so on, on December the eleventh, the day of the abdication, I mean, writing about it is. It was bizarre because you do get this sense of these massive events, these massive historic events coming down with this crushing inevitability. And there's a good bit actually in Edward's not brilliant autobiography when he writes about how as he was leaving Fort Belvedere, it was a beloved home of his, to go to Windsor Castle to make the abdication speech live on radio. He looked back at his, you know, his beloved house and thought, I'm never going to go there again. And then he realised for the first time, oh, this is what I've lost. This is what I'm never going to have again. And I think that's fascinating, the idea that, OK, he was writing this many years later. His ghostwriter was writing it years later. Yeah. But he had actually... ghostwriter who then left and wrote a much more entertaining book. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. but, but that's the thing. It's, he realised at you know, the last moment when it was too late, oh, maybe I have actually sacrificed too much. Yeah. And Wallace had realised that before. So it's, it's a properly tragic ending. And it's, it's, it's a really strange idea when you're writing a book like this, because I mean, I've always thought that every book should be a kind of symphony and you should have movements. And this, the movement at the end, is this massive, massive crescendo when he's making this broadcast, which is quite good, actually. I mean, if you listen to it now, it stands up quite well. It's because Churchill and Walter Monckton, his advisor, wrote most of it. But it's quite good. I mean, it's, it sounds about right. It sounds quite convincing, makes him sound like quite a reasonable, quite a likeable figure. So, yeah. Yeah, it's like you can't... It's, you, you definitely can tell he's had nothing to do with it because it's PR-wise, it's not a complete yeah. car crash. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the way I always thought of it. Um, for me... He's not a martyr in the Madonna image, um, a romantic martyr. He's a selfish individual and a very flawed individual. Um, that's not to say that, like, you have to you have to look for his positive points as well. Yeah. Um, we say that smiling because they're not easy to find with this man <laughs> some of the time. Um, for me, that's my stance. But I've got to finish writing my book before I attempt to convince everyone of that. Where do you stand? Um, well, what, what was the biggest surprise to me during my research was when I was in the Royal Archives, I was actually reduced to tears 
reading all the letters that his friends and intimates wrote to him on the day of abdication. Because there's about, I don't know, 30 or 40 of these letters. And as you go through them, it's basically like somebody's expressing their sympathy for your death, because you're mm. still alive. And it's a strange thing. So I think I've reproduced six or seven of them in the book. But if you produced any more, you just get to a stage where, like I was a sobbing wreck. And actually, you do realise that Edward, for all of his many, many faults, there were some good things about him. I mean, he was this young and well, youngish and energetic figure. He did have a different attitude towards monarchy. He was a more accessible figure than his father was. And, it, you know, in a lot of respects, I mean, if, if one was going to go for a drink with George VI or Edward VIII, if you go for a drink with Edward VIII, he'd have a lot more stories, he'd be a lot more fun. But then he'd also leave you and make you pay for all the drinks. Yeah, this is true. Tell everyone, it, the book is brilliant. It's out today. Tell everyone about it so they can go off and buy it, preferably from independent bookstores. Uh, yeah, just, just to echo that, if your independent bookstore is open, go and buy it. it is all, you've got to support bookshops at a time like now, especially because they've only opened a few weeks ago. They really need the income. Anyway, um, the book, Crown and Crisis, Countdown to the Abdication, it's my fourth book. I think it's by far the best book I've written because it's a book that I think says something new about its subject. Researching it, writing it has been an absolute honour and a joy. And it, I just feel this urge to go out and talk to people about it some more, actually, because it was really interesting. Because the first review I got of a book in the Times by David Aranovich, it was quite a nice review, but Aranovich basically takes the attitude the abdication was not a big deal. What was going on in Britain at the time was a much bigger deal. And I think to myself, that's a really interesting thought because i've always seen the application as an absolutely enormous deal in the history of this country mm. but then you can make an argument against it you can say that the application was ultimately people plotting in dark rooms and you've got you know the rise of hitler and the rise of nazism and all that and that's the real story in addition to the you know the social problems that britain faced but what i think is that actually it all ties together absolutely there we are yeah. You'd change the face of Britain utterly if he had remained on the throne. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah. and not in a good way. <laughs> no. <not in> good. <laughs> We've tried to be diplomatic. Thank you so much for coming on to discuss the book with us. Um, yeah, I feel you. like you've done exactly what I've done, which is finished writing one book in the Royal Archives and go, oh, no, I want to do another one because I have so much fun there and it's amazing. And they're kind. I, I, I had missed it when I was there. <laughs> Who was your person? Uh, Julie. Oh, I love Judy. I have Laura. Yeah, but she's so so helpful, so accommodating. Yeah, they're brilliant. Um, Because essentially what happens for people who don't know when you go to the Royal Archives is the Queen funds someone to work on your project with you. Um, And it's amazing. amazing. Mm, And generous. So when people trash them and say, oh, they're old fashioned, bullshit bullshit see more women in there than men i've seen every nationality ethnicity everything in the royal archives if you get turned down it's because the queen has already paid someone to work on a project too similar or there are more important ones it's not because they're elitist in the slightest is it because something that i said in a podcast just yesterday actually is i do feel that being given access to the royal archives and you know having all of these quite incendiary quotes approved for publication i did feel that would that was a decision taken at the absolute top level and i feel there's a sense of right okay we want this to get into the public domain we want this to be talked about because we feel that it's a story it's time is now everyone's talking about this quasi abdication which as i just said wasn't an abdication at all so let's get back and tell the real story let's get as much out there as we can and let's hope people respond to it
Yep, 100%. And also more generous than they need or possibly even should be. Most of the time, you will not get documents where the person who wrote them could still mathematically be alive. And I mean, you're looking at stuff being released in the Royal Archives now all the way up to 52. So that is very much still living memory, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Join us tomorrow when Sergei Radchenko will be talking all about the Sino-Soviet split in the Cold War. This one, I knew nothing about it when we started, but it's great. So make sure you tune in and find out from someone who's utterly knowledgeable exactly what happened to relations between China and the Soviet Union. And then join us down the pub when we will be revealing who you have voted as the greatest Britain in history. This is the last of our weekly down the pub shows because we figure, hey, real pubs are open now and we'd all rather be in one of those. We'll also be having a laugh and counting down our top 10 biggest twats in British history as well. Because quite a few of them have come up over the last few weeks uh, and we thought we'd laugh at them some more. So join us for that. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.